I want to begin by uh, just asking you for just a moment just to join me as we pray. This is the final book that we are studying this year. We've been reading uh, some key books throughout the year 2019. And so this is the final book, uh, 10 books we've been reading. This is the last one because in December uh, we won't be meeting on Sunday nights. We have different things happening. Uh, so this is the last book we're going to be studying this year. And uh, join us on Sunday nights as we work our way through First John. So pray with me as we uh, begin this new study. Father, it really has been uh, joy or, or it's been intriguing. It's been uplifting sometimes just to go from book to book and to learn more about your word and to have a better insight into our relationship with you and a better understanding of, your, the, of the Bible. And so, God, just pray again that as we look at this last book for this year, as we begin our journey through First John, I ask again for the power of the Holy Spirit to be evident in our lives, and as we open your word, may you open our heart. May the Holy Spirit be our teacher and our guide through the truth that we'll be reading tonight. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you found this to be true, that the more you know about something, the more meaningful it generally becomes? When you have an awareness of something, whether it's a movie or a book or anything like that, the more you know about it, the more meaningful it becomes. Uh, I can hardly sing the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, without thinking about the story behind it. You know, those words just mean so much more because I know the story behind the words. That's true with the Bible, too. The more you understand a book, the more meaningful that book becomes. And really, that's what we're going to try to do in this last book we're studying, 1 John. We're going to try to get very familiar with this book. We're going to watch in just a moment a very good video to kind of start our study. We've watched these each time uh, as each... The first Sunday night of each month as we've started a new book, we've watched this video. But this video is going to introduce to you First John, and it is so good. This video, I've watched it twice now, it is so good. But there is so much to absorb about this video. So, there's only so much you can take in and remember. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do, a little bit different today. Uh, I'm going to ask you to watch for three things as you watch the video. Listen for, watch for Three things. I'm going to give you the three questions I want you to find the answer to in the video. Here are the questions, and you might want to jot them down somewhere, at least try to remember it. Uh, the questions I want you to answer as you watch the video are these. First, what is John overseeing and where? The video will talk about what John oversees. Hint, it's related to churches. What is John overseeing and where would be the first thing to just listen for. You'll find that early in the, in the video. Question number two is, what is the crisis that John is addressing? That's an important question. What is the crisis that John is addressing? Listen for that in the video. And then the third question is this one. I want you to find out what is amplification. This video will talk about the concept of amplification in the book of First John. What is that? And we'll talk about that briefly. So let's, let's watch this video. It's about nine minutes. 
then we'll come back and answer those questions and then really get into the whole book of 1 John. The letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John is actually anonymous, but 2nd and 3rd John are written by someone who's called the Elder. Now, the language and style of all three of these works are identical to each other and to John's gospel. And so most people think that all of them come from the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, that could be John, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 apostles, or it could be another John among Jesus's earliest disciples known as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, he's now in his old age and he's overseeing a network of house church communities that are likely around the city of ancient Ephesus. Now, from clues within the gospel and from these letters, it seems that these communities were made up mostly of Jewish followers of Jesus and that they had recently gone through a crisis that motivated John to write these letters. He mentions that a group of people have broken off from these churches. These people no longer acknowledge Jesus as Israel's Messiah or as the Son of God. And they're stirring up hostility among those who stayed faithful to the churches. In fact, 2nd and 3rd John clearly address this conflict. 2nd John is a warning to a specific house church. There are people who deny Jesus. John calls them deceivers. And they're probably going to come looking for validation or support. And this church community is not to offer any. 3rd John is actually written to a member of one of these house churches, a man named Gaius. And the elder asks him to welcome legitimate missionaries who are going to arrive soon. He has to tell him to do this because the leader of that church community, Diotrephes, is acting like a jerk. And he's rejecting anybody associated with John the elder. And so these letters give us a window into the tension and conflict that John faced in these churches. And first, John was written as a response to all of this as a form of damage control. The elder assures those who still believe in the Messiah, Jesus, that God is with them as they adhere to the truth. And so all of this helps us understand the uniqueness of 1 John, which is actually not a letter at all. It reads more like a poetic sermon sent to these churches. John says that he's not communicating new information. In fact, almost all of the key ideas and words in 1 John come right out of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of John. And so John's goal is to remind them and persuade these Christians to stay true to what they already say they believe. The poetic quality of John's sermon is really cool. He doesn't develop his ideas in a linear or logical way. Rather, he uses a well-known technique of ancient rhetoric called amplification. So John has just a few core ideas he wants to communicate about life and truth and love. And he's going to cycle around these ideas repeatedly, each time offering a little bit different of an angle or emphasis. He uses a lot of hyperbole. He uses very stark contrasts with simple images of light and dark and love and hate and good and evil. But don't let the simplicity of 1 John fool you. This work is deeply profound. There's a clear introduction to 1 John and then a clear conclusion. And the flowing cycles of the sermon in between these two don't follow any kind of rigid literary design. But there do seem to be two larger sections. Each one is marked off by the introductory phrase, this is the message. And then each is followed by a repetition of images about how God is first light and then how God is love. And all of the ideas in these two parts flow out of and cycle back into these two core ideas. So the introduction is very similar to the prologue of the Gospel of John. It has echoes of Genesis chapter 1 and Proverbs chapter 8. John speaks of the word of life that was with God in the beginning. 
For John, the word God refers to both the Father and the Son who came to bring life into the world. And so those who saw and heard and touched the Son are called we. John's referring to himself and the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so now we have a message for you, the next generation of Jesus' followers. So when the apostles share the word of life with others, these others are also brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son through the apostles. The word fellowship here is koinonia in Greek. It means a participation or sharing. When people hear the message about Jesus through the apostles, that message brings them into a real relationship with Jesus himself and into a real participation in God's own love and life. And so this flows right into the first main section. This is the message. God is light. This is the message of the apostles that the God revealed in Jesus is light. And so if people want to participate in God's own life through Jesus, they need to keep walking in the light, which is a really cool image, but what does it mean? It means for John to keep Jesus's commands. And that's hard. So when you fail, Jesus's atoning death will cover for your sins. And then once again, you're called to get up and obey Jesus's teachings. But which one of his teachings? John reminds the churches of Jesus's old slash new command given to the disciples at the Last Supper, that they love one another as he loved them. Doing this is walking in the light. Now, if God's light is now shining through Jesus, then that means the world's darkness is passing away, which also means that God's children already in this moment have victory over the sin and evil and death that reigns in the world. And so that leads John to challenge the churches, don't love the world because it's passing away too. He's referring here specifically to pride and sexual corruption. Likely, these are problems connected to the conflict that was happening in the churches. And so this leads John to warn the churches about these people who have left the communities and who deny Jesus as the Messiah. John calls them the anti-Messiahs and deceivers, but he's confident that those who still know the truth about Jesus are, in fact, the true children of God and they are loved by the Father. And they show that they're part of God's family when they do righteousness and when they love one another, unlike the deceivers who are generating anger and strife and division. And so this transitions into the second main section of the sermon. This is the message of the apostles, John says, that God is love. And so God's children should love one another and avoid hatred. Don't be like Cain from Genesis chapter 4, John says. His hatred led him to murder his brother. But for Christians, love is defined by giving up one's life as a sacrifice for the well-being of others. That's what Jesus did. And when God's children trust in that love for them, it changes them. And so John warns once again of the deceivers. This time he calls them false prophets. When they deny Jesus is the Messiah, they apparently claim to speak for God. But John says to test the spirits. If anyone claims to speak on God's behalf but doesn't focus on Jesus as the crucified Son of God, they do not speak for God, John says. God's true children will center their whole lives on the crucified and risen Jesus because that's where we see God's true heart revealed. We see on the cross that God is a being of total self-giving love. And that love is what compels Jesus' followers to love others in the same way. And when people meet this God of love, it does away with fear and angst forever. Which is part of what John means by having victory over the world. When you realize that God so 
loves you, that he is crazy about you despite your deepest flaws and failures, that love becomes the thing that grounds your entire life. This love is what comes through trusting in the crucified Jesus. It comes through trusting God's testimony about Jesus given by the Spirit, and it's trusting in the message from the apostles about Jesus. And when God's love gets a hold of you, it opens up eternal life. It's a life permeated with God's own presence and life and love, and it begins now carrying on into eternity. And so this leads John to the climactic conclusion of his sermon. He says, We know the Son of God has come, and so we can know the one who is true. And we are in the one who is true, in his Son, Jesus the Messiah. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, if your head's kind of spinning after hearing that sentence, and you're wondering, wait, who is the one who is true? Who is the one who gives true life? Is it Jesus or is it God? And John's answer is, of course, yes. John doesn't know any God apart from Jesus. And when he and the other apostles encountered Jesus, they discovered the God who loves us so deeply that he has chosen not to exist without us despite our failures. And this God is so surprising, so unexpected, that John's final words call us to keep away from idols. That is, to resist any temptation to remake the surprising God in our own image. To know Jesus is to know the God of creative, life-giving, others-centered love. This, John says, is the one true God. And that's what the letters of John are all about. You get it all? <laughs> yeah, all that's in that little book. So I'm going to give you a blank sheet of paper. I want you to write all that out. There's a lot there. So, but I ask you to find the answer to three questions. And this is going to kind of set the stage for the rest of the study. First of all, uh, the first question is, what is John overseeing and where? What did he say John was overseeing? House churches, a network of house churches, communities, uh, and where were they located? In, around, near Ephesus. So keep that in mind as you're looking at this book, as we go through this book, that he's writing to, be, to, to believers in little house churches scattered around Ephesus. Number two, what's the crisis that John is addressing? Deceivers? What? Yeah, people who have left the church, who are deceivers, they're false prophets, and they are, they are uh, no longer acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. They no longer believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And they want to convince you that they're right. Uh, so that's, that's, one, that's the big crisis in the book of 1 John. Number three, big question. What is amplification? Yes. That's right. Repetitive, cyclical writing about life, truth, and love. When you use hyperbole and you use stark contrast, and you will see that again and again and again through John, this, this contrast of light and dark, uh, those kind of words that there's light and there's dark, there's truth and there's a lie, there's all kinds, there's, there's love and there's hate. Uh, so this contrast, but you'll see these repetitive things throughout the book. Over and over and over again, you'll see these same things, themes repeated. Now, John naturally falls into two different sections, if you will. I want to spend a few minutes 
working through this book with you. One section of the book, the first, really the first chapters uh, 1 and 2, and then the second section of the book, chapters 3 through 5, uh, that's really kind of a good way to divide the book. So, so this section deals with fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. This section of the book deals with our relationship. Our relationship with God. Now it's interesting that John gives us three tests in the first two chapters. He gives three tests to say this is how you know if you have fellowship with God. All right, so let me make sure I get these in the right order. One is obedience. The other is love. And the other is truth. John would say there's three tests to see if you really have fellowship with God. One is your obedience. The other is the test of love. The other is the test of truth. Let me show you this in the Scripture. Take your Bibles. Let's look at 1 John. Um, 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the message that we have heard from him and declared to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So there is, uh, is one example of how you see this contrast, light and darkness. And you'll see that all through the book of John. And then he says in verse 6, If we claim to have fellowship, there's the word, look up here. If we claim to have fellowship, all right? If we claim to have fellowship with him, Yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. He's talking about obedience here. If you claim that you have fellowship with God, but you're not obeying God, if you're walking in darkness instead of light, John says, then you don't have the fellowship that you claim to have. So, in chapters 1, 1 and 2, he's talking about fellowship, and one of the tests is obedience. The second test is the test of love. Let's look and see what he says about that. Chapter 2. Verses 9 and 10 will be an example. Uh, oh, by the way, let me give you the, the whole reference. Uh, the test of obedience, if you're taking notes, is chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 6 is the test of obedience. Then there's the test of love, chapter 2, verses 7 through 17. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 17. And here's what he says in verse 9 and 10. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. John's talking about the test of love here. If you say you have fellowship but you hate your brother, then you don't have the fellowship you say you do. The test of love. And then there's the test of truth. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, if you're taking notes. The test of truth. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Let's just read verses 18 through 21. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. And then he goes on to say, 
They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now look at verse 20 and 21. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the what, church? You know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie comes from truth. So John is talking about, again, chapters 1 and 2, fellowship, and here he talks about the test of truth, that you have the truth, you know the truth, which is evidence that you have fellowship with God. So the first half of the book, fellowship with God. The second half of the book talks about relationship with God, or some people call it sonship. But, but I felt like that left the ladies out, so I used the word relationship. We could call it daughtership if you wanted to, okay? So John is saying there are also three tests to determine if you have sonship or daughtership or relationship with God. Fellowship is one thing. Sonship, daughtership, relationship is a totally different thing. So John's uh, teaching is going to be this. Our fellowship with God might change from time to time. Our relationship with God will never change. So, he says there's three tests to determine if you have relationship with God. Guess what? The three tests are obey, love, and truth. Let me show you this in Scripture. First of all, the test of obedience is chapters 3, the the entire chapter 3. Three, the entire third chapter. The test of obedience is chapter 3. Look what he says, in, for example, in chapter 3, verse 19 through 24. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. That we belong, not just that we have fellowship, but we belong to the truth and how we set our, our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, he knows everything. And then he goes on to say, Dear friends, If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we we do what? We obey His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Those, watch this, verse 24, those who obey His commands live in Him and He in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Those who, look up here, the test of obedience. Those who obey his commands are the ones that he lives in them and they live in, in him. The test of obedience about our relationship. Then he goes on to say chapter 4 is the test of love. Chapter 4, the entire fourth chapter, the test of love. Let me give you an example in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. He couldn't be any clearer, could he? So the test of of whether or not you know God, the test of your relationship, your sonship, your daughtership, is do you love? So John is saying this is how you, you can know that you know. The test of love. And then there's the test of truth in chapter 5. The test of truth. Let's just read a few verses there. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Verse 4. For everyone born of God, those who have a relationship with him, sonship, daughtership, 
For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who does what? Believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John would say the real test of your sonship, your daughtership, your relationship with God, the real test is your obedience, your love, and truth. So John's thesis, let me say it one more time, his thesis is that at times our fellowship with God changes. At times our fellowship with God wavers. But our relationship with God never wavers. Our relationship with God never changes. John is very concerned that the people he's writing to He wants to make sure that they know, that they know, that they know Jesus. He wants to give them confidence about their relationship with the Lord. So John says, this is how you can have confidence. Just kind of take a test. Test your fellowship with God. Obedience, love, and truth. Test your relationship with God. Obedience, love, and truth. All right. Before we start talking about Uh, the author and some more aspects of the book. Do you have any questions or comments? Anybody? Question or comment? All right, let's talk about the author. If you're taking notes, that'll be the next big point, the author. Of course, I believe that the author is John, the son of Zebedee. Uh, Take your Bibles. Let me just show you a scripture that's one that I'm sure you're familiar with, but I just want to talk about it for a moment. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Early in the Lord's ministry, the calling of his first disciples is recorded for us in Mark chapter 1. And we'll just begin reading in verse 16. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 19, when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, we could take a little time here and just do a complete study on leaving the boat, leaving their dad, leaving the business. And was this the first contact that they had with Jesus? I think not. I think they had previous contact with Jesus. But regardless, uh, regardless, the, the point I want you to make is this. When they left that boat, they had no idea what the Lord had in store for them. They had no idea what he had dreamed for them, his plans for them. They just knew that they were following Jesus today. They just made that decision, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus, but they didn't know where that was going to lead them. They didn't know how he was going to use them, nor do you, by the way. You say yes to the Lord. You don't know how he's going to use you. You don't know where he's going to lead you. But John, is, is, it's an intriguing thing because we believe that this John was the same one who, who is known as the Apostle John. The Apostle John, John the son of Zebedee, also known as John the Apostle, became the author 
of five letters in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and what book? Revelation. So think about this for a moment. When he left the fishing boat, he left his father in the boat, and he went to follow Jesus. He had no idea that he would one day write five books of the New Testament. In fact, he's the most prolific author in the New Testament other than the Apostle Paul. Five books of the New Testament. The Gospel of John, the story of Jesus. First, second, and third John. Letters written to the house churches. And Revelation, the, the, the letter about the end of times. Now, why was John used by the Lord so much? Or why was he so prolific in what he did? This is just somewhat of a speculation on my part, but you probably remember that John was part of the inner circle of Jesus. He not only was called by the Lord to follow him, he left his business and his dad and he went and followed Jesus. He not only was an apostle, it's very likely, listen, listen, it's very likely that John was Jesus' best friend. You have a best friend? I mean, besides your spouse? Uh, seriously, I hope your spouse is your best friend. But do you have any other really close, really close friends? I hope you do. I believe that it's likely that John was Jesus' best friend. I'll show you why. Let's look in the Bible for a moment. Um, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, you know the story, so we're not going to dig into it, but, but just think for a moment. Just file this away for a second. When Jesus, he had the 12, had, had a large crowd, and then he narrowed that down to 12. The 12 followed him, learned from him. They were the apostles. And then he wanted to reveal to to some of them who he really was he wanted to kind of pull back the curtain and let them see his glory for a moment and so out of those 12 he chose three Peter James and John Peter and the two brothers Peter and the two brothers went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and there they saw a glimpse of the glory of God in the person of Jesus so this was his private crowd and, and by the way do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane the Garden of Gethsemane, who did he take with him to pray with him? He took all the apostles at first, and they only went so far, and then who went further? Peter, James, and John. It's interesting that even the Lord had that smaller circle. Guys that he relied on. Maybe guys that he prayed with. Guys that he laughed with. Had that smaller circle of three. But it even gets smaller than that. Uh, look in the text at um, John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Verse 
John chapter 13. Um, let's start in verse 19, just so you'll have the whole context. This, this is occurring uh, on the last night, Jesus' last night with his disciples. And starting in verse uh, 19, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. In other words, it was not obvious to the disciples that Judas was the one who would be the betrayer. It was not obvious to them. Verse 23. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, and Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. So Peter's already close, right? But Peter didn't have the freedom, didn't feel the freedom to say, Lord, which one are you talking about? The Bible says that Peter went, Psst, John, ask him which one he means. Now, John, for the sake of humility, did not say, and that was me. He just referred to himself as the, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Most scholars believe that he's actually referring to himself, and you read some following verses, it, it seems to indicate that that was indeed John who was there, and Peter was like, Psst, ask him which one. Why did Peter do that? Because Peter knew that there was a special relationship between Jesus and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Some translations say, I, I was reading the new, I think it was the New Living Translation, it says it referred to the disciple who was Jesus' best friend. Which I, I love that translation. The disciple who was Jesus' best friend. The reason I'm taking so much time with that is because I want to talk to you about how it all played out in the end. Guess who the last apostle, the, who the last living apostle was? Yes. I don't think that's coincidence. Guess who the the first apostle to die was. He died a martyr's death, by the way. Who was the first? The first one to die was who? No, James. Peter, Peter was crucified. Uh, but James, in the book of Acts, James was the very first apostle to die. He, was, he died a martyr's death. So John's brother was the first one to die. Remember these three, Peter, James, and John. Peter was arrested, and they were about to kill him too. Later, Peter was crucified, and, and, and tradition says he, he requested to be crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to die like my Savior. So these three that were the closest to Jesus, they were not the only ones to die a martyr's death. They all did, essentially, but, but these three especially, the Bible talks about the way that they died and when they died. James died first. John died last. Jesus' best friend died Last. Now, the reason you need to know that is because John, in my estimation, was the last voice as a witness to the truth of who Jesus was. 
Who was the last person to speak into history about the identity of Jesus? It was his best friend. The one who knew him best. So when John is writing to these churches scattered around Ephesus, when these little house churches and, there's, and there, there is all of this turmoil in these little house churches about the identity of Jesus, and, uh, and we'll get into this in a little bit or maybe next week, but there's all this turmoil in these churches about the identity of, of Jesus. John was the last voice to speak into that. The one that was closest to Jesus could speak the best about who he really was. And it's interesting that John wrote the last four books of the New Testament. First, second, third, John, Revelation. Written probably in the 90s, AD 90, AD 90 to 96, that time frame of five or six years, he wrote these last four books as the final voice, the final witness to the identity and the uniqueness of Jesus. Now, talking about the first John a little bit more, one of the unique things about the book uh, is, is the way it starts. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. We, we're so used to the, we've been studying a lot of the Pauline letters on Sunday nights. And you know the Pauline letters always start out with something like this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints at Ephesus. So in the Pauline letters, they have this standard format of the author is listed first and then the recipients of the letter, then the body of the letter, then the conclusion to the letter. That's not the format that we see here. We don't see uh, that, that type of introduction at all. Look how this begins. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and which our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And he goes on talking about the word of life and, and all of that. But there's no introduction, there's really no hint as to who the author is. There's nothing like in the Pauline letters where it said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, said the saints at Ephesus. There's nothing like that. It's, there's no mention of the author at all. Skip over to Second John. Look how it starts. Second John, the elder, that's the author. He refers to himself as the elder. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. Not only I, but also uh, all who know the truth. And he goes on. Third John, same thing. The elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. If you watch the video carefully, you probably understand that first John the author is not mentioned, but in 2nd and 3rd John, the author is mentioned. He's referred to as the elder. Now, probably that is an indication of this. It's probably an indication that 1st John doesn't tell us who the author is because it was probably intended to be a circular letter handed from church house or house church to house church to house church to house church, a circular letter for all the house churches in and around Ephesus. So there's no mention of who he's writing to whereas second and third John are written to individuals or to a church in that house very specific all right does that make sense okay what time all right um so why do we think that John the apostle was the one who wrote these letters I want you to go back and find the gospel of John chapter 1 the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 
verse 1. Notice how this gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He talks about in the beginning was the Word. Look at, in 1 John chapter 1 how it begins. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which our eyes have seen, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. Both books, and that's not the only similarity, that's just the, the easiest one to point out. Both books are so similar in their writing that they even begin in a very similar way. Talk about the beginning and the word. And it, that's in the Gospel of John as well as First John, the beginning and the word. So that's a little bit about the author. The author is probably John the Apostle the last living voice and witness to our world. Now, uh, we're not going to have time to get into deep weeds onto uh, something that will help you understand the context, but let me just give you a summary of the book, and then we'll call it a night and come back and and dig deeper into this book. Uh, Let me give you a summary of the book itself. It's interesting that, that 1 John, in some ways, is a very simple book, And in some ways, a very profound book. It's unlike any other book that that I can think of uh, in the New Testament. It's simple in its writing and in its content. Or or in its writing style and its vocabulary, rather. It's it's pretty simple in its writing style and its vocabulary. In fact, uh, seminary students, when they're learning Greek... And you, the, and you have to translate a book of the New Testament, usually the, fir, the first book you translate in, in your first Greek class is the gospel, is First John. Because it's so simple. It's written so simple. It was, the words are simple in First John. And so that's the first book you translate, usually in a Greek class, is, is the book of First John. It's a very simple book in writing style and in grammar. Very simple, easy to, to translate kind of a book. But it's also very profound as he talks about the light and the darkness, as he talks about fellowship and sonship, as he talks about some very deep things. It's, it's a profound book in its content. So it's simple in its writing and vocabulary, but profound in its content. It, it's a book that will make you scratch your head every once in a while. and say, Lord, I need, you to, I need you to help me with this one. All right, so... Uh, it's, again, just some general statements about the book, and we'll be done. It's called a letter, even though it's really not so much a letter in form. It's more, as they said on the video, a, a poetic sermon or a poetic message. It's a message for the churches uh, scattered around Ephesus. Um, okay, let, let me close with this. Uh, this letter was prompted by, by an actual problem in the church. And uh, I'm, I'm going to give you a word to look up. If you like to do any kind of a homework, if you like to study anything, I'm going to give you a word and then we'll talk about it the next time. The big issue that you will see in 1 John when you really start studying it is something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. 
The idea behind Gnosticism, we'll explain Gnosticism to you later uh, next week, but the idea behind Gnosticism is if you have enough knowledge, you can obtain salvation. And it's not a salvation by faith, it's a salvation by knowledge. John is going to write this letter, 1 John, to fight this idea of Gnosticism because some of the, some of the uh, things that grew out of Gnosticism was the belief, for example, that Jesus was not literally human, that he only appeared to be human. Another form of Gnosticism was that Jesus, when he died, was not physically present in his body, that the spirit of Jesus uh, came upon him at baptism and left him before his crucifixion, so that his body, he wasn't there on the cross, his body wasn't there on the cross. It just appeared that his body was on the cross. And so John is writing against this. These who claim to have more knowledge than other people. These who claim to have, if you have superior knowledge, you would get this. John is writing against that to say, no, it all comes back to fellowship and to sonship or relationship. And it's not about knowledge, it's about obeying, it's about love, it's about truth. It's not about gnosis or knowledge. We'll explain this, that, that probably clouds it for you, but maybe you want to Google it. Just be careful what you read when you Google stuff. Uh, just, just because it's on the computer doesn't mean it's true. But uh, you'll find a lot of good stuff on the computer too. But you can research Gnosticism, we'll talk about it next week. And there's a reason, I'm just dying to get into it, but there's a reason that in verse 1, there's a reason that John begins the way he does in verse 1. And, and, and I don't, well, let me just read it to you. Here's what he says. That which was from the beginning. I got chill bumps on my arm right here. That which was from the beginning. He's eternal. The Gnostics would not say that. The Gnostics would not agree with that. That which was from the beginning, watch this, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have... John said, he didn't just appear to be human. I touched him. I heard him. I saw him. John would say, this, this is a heresy. Jesus didn't appear to be human. He was human. He was God in flesh. Maybe that'll whet your appetite and we'll dig into it next week. Thanks for being here tonight. God bless.